0: Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast
1: of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we're giving you the tools to make a difference right now.
0: Today, we are not talking about the Oscars, but we are talking about Trump crimes, missing call logs, a SCOTUS swipe, two bills, a really good one and a really bad one, and Republican
1: gerrymandering. Also, I'll give you my hot take on Will Smith. No. (laughs) No. Uh, just kidding, kind of. Then joining us to talk about his amazing book about John Lewis and all of his other projects that span books, documentaries, music, and finance is multi Grammy winner and best selling author Kabir Segal. I'm Steve Pearson.
0: And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is How We Win. win. The official podcast of The Persistence, you've been saying this for a while now, so it it must be
1: true. It's it's officially official now that we announced it at the beginning of the show. Yes. And all of our listeners are the persistence. So, uh, we, uh, I like that tagline because it focuses us on, um, the road ahead, which is really important. Uh, this interview with Kabir was really inspiring. He wrote John Lewis's, uh, carry on reflections for a new generation, which Mm. was really his last thoughts and, um, what he wanted to leave before he passed away. And, um, the big takeaways for me, which was uh, really refocusing, and everyone will hear in the interview, is um, is we are the ones. Is, you know, John Lewis never gave mm-hmm. up hope. He saw the arc of history as some successes and some defeats, um, and getting pushed back and standing up again and moving forward, uh, and he knows how important the vote is. And, uh, and so if there's anyone who exemplifies what it is to be the persistence, it is uh, representative, the late Representative John Lewis. So excited for everyone to hear that interview.
0: Can't wait for that. Um, and you know, our first big news item of the day, of the the week that we wanted to talk about, is is quite relevant, and it is a huge victory. Um, finally, after years of efforts and and hundreds of it, like two hundred attempts, we now yeah. have. The Emmett Till anti-lynching bill that that um, President Biden signed shortly before we're recording this.
1: That's right, and um, it's jaw-dropping that in 2022, this is when we're signing this uh, anti-lynching bill and, and making lynching a, a, hate, a federal hate crime, uh, but. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, and mm-hmm. um, and this is a a huge moment. And um, you know, when we have other bills being passed at the same time, and we're talking about DeSantis signing the "Don't Say Gay" bill, you know, and not Shinkurasario, one of our faves, tweeted, you know. It, with everyone talking about the don't say gay bill, it's really heartbreaking that that's such a messaging win for Republicans too, that that phrase is out there so much, but, um, it's I actually think
0: that's a, I I think it's a, it's a win for, for us because it is so absurd and I don't think Republicans like it, but it's, I think it's one of those that we've been able to, to, um, put out there that shows the absurdity and how harmful it captures the harmful nature of the bill yes so but i do want to just like um point out a couple of things about the the anti-lynching bill which Mm -hmm. makes lynching a federal hate crime that means harsher punishments and um I, i would say appropriate punishments carried out across the board, no matter what state this is in. And it's also significant because um, lynching has, in our country's history, specifically mostly targeted Black people. And so right. this bill, even though lynching is not nearly as common as it once was, it's saying um, it's saying something to us about, about this particular hate crime. I just want to point out that there were, were three Republicans who voted against it. And I just can't even imagine why why you would, but Andrew Clyde of Georgia, Thomas Massey of Kentucky, and Chip Roy of Texas um, have gone on record as being the only three people against this bill. Um, but I want to close this part of the conversation out with a quote from Emmett Till's cousin, um, who released a statement saying, My cousin was a bright, promising 14-year-old from Chicago. My family was devastated that no one was held responsible for the abduction, torture, and murder of Emmett. But we are heartened by this new law, which shows that Emmett still speaks in powerful ways to make sure that no one can get away with a racist crime like this ever again. And, of course, this bill is named after Emmett Till, who, as a teenager, was um, very violently and brutally lynched for, you know, a, a white woman claimed that he, you know, whistled at her, I think. Right. Um, and this was he was visiting the South from Chicago. Um, and for that
1: he was murdered. So um, that uh, alleged incident, he was murdered. It should have happened a long time ago. Shame on anyone. It's inconceivable that you would vote against this. But it, uh, people have voted against it or have kept it from going, uh, you know, becoming law uh, for many, many years, for decades. So um, it's passed now. Biden uh, signed it into law. And it's a, it's an important moment to recognize.
0: So incredible. And then, like you said, the same like the day before, Ron DeSantis in Florida has a bunch of children standing around him. Oh, I hated,
1: I hated his optics there with those kids standing around him. Uh,
0: standing next to him as he signed, um, this really like the, the idea and spirit behind this, this bill is really horrific. Um, but I, I texted you today because I watched (laughs) a a video that Ron Perlman, AKA Hellboy, um, I'm sure that's what Ron DeSantis was calling him today. He, um, Ron, who's been on the podcast, since Steve's, Steve, Steve is friend of our him, pod. Yes, um, uh, posted a, a video uh, targeting Ron DeSantis.
1: Yeah, My he was. Part uh, is
0: when he's just like Ron here, <laughs> and then tears into it. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, if I I have a hard time articulating my feelings about this bill, so just watch Ron Perlman's video and uh, and he speaks for me uh, in the sauciest of ways. And uh, yeah, he post, uh, he posted that and literally walked into my studio like three hours later, uh, and and he was trending. So it's it's pretty funny. But uh,
0: did you say anything to him about it?
1: Yeah, of course. No, I always appreciate when he uses. His platform, and um, you know, it's you can debate whether uh, his uh, tact or lack thereof is uh, is good or not. Um, but it was trending. It got picked up by news outlets. Uh, and, um, you know, he it, it got millions of views on that video. And that's a lot of attention on yeah. this, uh, you know, egregious, disgusting, draconian bill coming out of Florida. So um, I, I appreciate him for all of that. And I encourage anyone who missed uh, our interview with him uh, to go mm-hmm, back and yeah. listen to that from uh, like a month ago. Around here. <laughs> Speaking of horrible, egregious uh, people.
0: Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, so where do we start with this? Like, there's so much new stuff about the January 6th investigation.
1: It's been drowned out by some other <clears throat> stuff that we w- don't want to get sucked into um, news that happened this week. But, uh, you know, Trump uh, started out with the federal judge uh, saying that Trump certainly committed crimes um, and, uh, and the January 6th commission is really tightening up. Uh, had an open forum, I believe it was yesterday, and kind of laid into Attorney General Merrick Garland too in the Justice Department in general saying, we're doing our job, you need to do yours. There mm. is enough evidence in their view and in this federal judge. Judge's view right. to um, to convict Trump uh, of crimes. And uh, in the wake of that announcement, there has been more. We talked about, uh, you were talking about Jenny Thomas and and um, her. Oh my
0: god, I rang the alarm bell weeks ago.
1: <laughs> you did it. I think we broke that. No, we didn't break it, but um, <laughs> she was actually at the uh January 6th rally slash insurrection, uh, even though she had previously said she wasn't. Now it turns out that there are. Numerous texts of her uh, to Mark Meadows imploring them to uh, to fight the certification of the president, of the new president, and uh, it's just insane. Uh, so there's a, a renewed call uh, for Clarence Thomas to resign. Uh, and uh, Move On is launching a, a big campaign calling on Clarence Thomas to resign, and uh, if he fails to do so, which – Spoiler alert, he will fail to do so, um, demanding that Congress impeach him and remove him for the court for this egregious uh, conflict of interest. Literally right, voting. He's married,
0: he's married to Jenny Thomas.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, he's married to Jenny Thomas. And people can be married to spouses who have different views and do different things. That's fine. But in this case, she was actively trying to thwart the uh, you know, our democracy, Uh, and supported an insurrection, and he was ruling on and will continue to rule on cases that have to do with that. Um, He also didn't disclose uh, a lot of money that she got from the Heritage Foundation um, on the disclosure form when uh, the spousal income space was there. He wrote zero for her, zero (laughs) income for her. What? yeah
0: um you know what he also didn't disclose that she is bananas and has <laughs> like QAnon Q- level level consp- like this lady is a zealot and the texts between she and trump's chief of staff mark meadows were bonkers yeah like, yeah and so um i don't think clarence thomas is going anywhere and i don't think that he's going to be impeached and removed from the court, given all the things that we've seen around this Supreme Court. But I think that we need to be aware of what is probably being discussed at their dinner table.
1: Yeah, what is, like... (laughs) Like, is he just nodding his head to, you know, these uh, these QAnon conspiracy things that she's spouting out at the dinner table? And, you know, I mean, he's a Supreme Court justice. He must have some sort of insight into what is true and whether uh, an actual deep state cabal is uh, crushing children's bones and drinking their blood and whatever.
0: So she wasn't texting about that. And like, listen. Have you ever texted somebody and you're being sarcastic or funny and they don't get it because it's on text? Maybe she was being, maybe she and Mark Meadows were making fun of the on people, but it really does seem based on I these so. texts that she truly believed that the quote unquote biting crime family was minutes away from being arrested and held in, in barges off of like off of the Guantanamo Bay prison um, where they were going to be like publicly dried. We weren't close to any of that happening, but the fact that she potentially thought that was a possibility gives us a lot of, a lot of insight.
1: Look, if we don't do our jobs, you know, I know that sounds far fetched, but if we don't do our jobs and show up and register a lot of voters and make Mm -hmm. sure that they vote in the midterms and and stay in power, then, you know, that, uh, I, I'm not saying any of that is far-fetched. What what the Republicans are willing to do right now is really scary. And, um, you know, we have uh, a very, very important election ahead of us. So uh, for this and other reasons, and there was even more news, more January 6th commission news. Do you want to talk about the...
0: Oh, yeah, this broke today. the spurt today, the day that we're recording this, Washington Post and CBS News are seeing that um, the White House communications logs that were sent to the committee investigating January 6th have a seven-hour gap in uh, Trump's phone call list. Um, so, from a, about 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., according to these logs, Donald Trump did not make any phone calls on January 6th. Now, why? And 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 the the optimists among us might say. Maybe some pages are missing. Maybe like the- Oh, this page is missing.
1: In- <laughs> oh.
0: or, or maybe they were taken or hidden or quite possibly um, maybe Donald Trump, because he was trying to foment an insurrection, was using non-official methods to communicate with people inside and outside of the Capitol. Maybe using staffers' phones or burner phones he claims to not know what a burner phone is although mm. I, I i highly doubt that but donald, um,
1: donald trump doesn't know a lot of things but he knows what a burner, he
0: knows phone, what is. A burner phone is yeah. <laughs> so lots of january 6 news and like you said all the more reason that we have to stay in power because if the republicans were in charge none of this stuff would be coming out
1: no, it would be squashed and in, in fact, the Republicans the January sixth Commission is trying to uh, depose and the testimony they're trying to seek right now have uh, you know since January apparently have to do with this time gap and uh, and there's people who reportedly got calls from Trump during that time. so they're subpoenaing their their phone records to figure out where those calls came from what Communication methods was uh, Trump using? It's very clear. Look, it's been clear from the beginning, but there is concrete evidence here of of what we all know is uh, Trump committing these crimes against our very democracy. And um, I really hope that this uh, starts to tighten up and, and that uh, I join the echo of the January 6th Commission to the Justice Department to do their job. You know, it's clear for everyone, it's time to start making some formal charges.
0: That's right. Um, And then, you know, in more local level news, redistricting has been an important, but probably often undercovered topic nationwide since since this results came out, Um, but man, The Ohio Republican Party, like no attempt to be like, what do you mean? Of course, we're going to draw fair maps that the public can get behind. No attempt at that at all.
1: That's right. The uh, their first maps were rejected by the Ohio Supreme Court as unconstitutional. And so there was a plan to have bipartisan map makers uh, that was in progress and uh, and then Republicans basically just did slight tweaks to the mm-hmm. uh, unconstitutional map, presented the maps Monday night shortly before lawmakers had to vote on it, like with no time. They're up against a midnight legal deadline from the Ohio Supreme Court. So this is going to be fought in court. Democrats will fight it in court. It will probably get overturned in court. But because of the timing, this map will likely stand for the next four years mm. um, and uh, and certainly for the upcoming midterm elections. So, uh, you know, it again, we have overcome gerrymandering. We have overcome voter suppression. We have overcome enormous obstacles. We did it in 2020. We did it in the runoff election in Georgia, where we registered even more... Uh, Voters than were registered in 2020 for the presidential. Um, So we can do it again, uh, but it's going to take all of us being the persistence that you are.
0: That's right. Um, Let's talk about our hero of the week.
1: So I know everyone is talking about the Oscars right now. It's hard not to talk about it. It really is hard not to weigh into it. We uh, hopefully gave you all some news that's being swallowed up by the Oscar news coverage. But my hero of the week is writer-director Sean Hader, who uh, is the director of CODA that just won Best Picture at the Oscars. Nice. And I wanted to highlight her also because I'm sort of friends with her. You know, we we know her a, a little bit and we've been uh, rooting for her. She... Chose a story that highlighted um, the deaf community uh, mm-hmm. in in a way that uh, that hasn't been done before. That told this really beautiful story about family at a time when I think we needed uh, a, a feel-good story when so many of us were not feeling good. They debuted at Sundance. They sold it to Apple for the biggest deal in Sundance history. It was just. Uh, made a killing, and then was nominated for three Academy Awards, won all three. She won for Best Adapted Screenplay, um, one for Best Supporting Actor, making it the first deaf male actor to win an Academy Award, uh, and then they won Best Picture. It's a huge moment for the deaf community. And also, the Oscars in general uh, were full of, of really huge, big, important moments. The first LGBTQ woman of color to win an Oscar. Um, Your Reason for Hope addresses another huge win um, in the documentary category. What else? A, a woman won Best Director. We had a, women, a woman win Best Director, Jane Campion. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some great things that have been drowned out by, uh, by uh, you know, Will Smith's assault. Um, but I want to celebrate Sean Hader and and recognize her as our hero of the week because um, she made a really beautiful film highlighting a community that does not get a lot of uh, voice in, in this world. So um, for that, she's our hero of the week.
0: Congratulations to Sean from The Persistence. Tell her we said, go, go, Keep go. Keep going. <laughs> um, let's talk about this week's to-do list. Today, we want you to go to swingleft.org and find a race in a in one of Swing Left's targeted states near you. Find a race that you can get involved in, either in person, if it's safe to do that in your community, or there are so many virtual ways to get involved in these campaigns now and fun, um, phone banking and fundraising and all that good stuff. Um, something for everyone to do. Uh, Steve, any suggestions for how people, if they don't live in one of these targeted states, how do they pick which one to go for?
1: Great question. Well, uh, I love what Swing Left uh, has done with their website. If you haven't checked it out in a bit, um, of course, there are our old besties of course but um, Mm -hmm. go to swingleft.org as Mariah said and they have a new uh, target state finder for you you can put in your zip code they'll steer you towards the places close to you where you can make an impact Um, it's akin to the district finder that if you're an old school swing lefter like myself Mm -hmm. um, that's how we cut our teeth is getting plugged into these areas where we can really make a difference so um, it's it's time to, to sign up up and, and join a group if you can. I mean, the community in these groups is spectacular and, and really meaningful. Um, but there's, like Mariah said, lots of ways to get involved.
0: All right. So swingleft.org and find a race near you. Uh, we're going to be back right after this interview with our reasons for hope. So stick around.
1: Kabir Segel is a multi-Grammy and Latin Grammy Award winner, New York Times bestselling author of 17 books, U.S. Navy veteran, and former J.P. Morgan banker. Among his many projects, he worked with the late Congressman and civil rights icon John Lewis to write Carry On Reflections for a New Generation. Kabir, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
1: Um, I I have to admit, preparing for this interview was really difficult because you have such an incredible body of work across music and film and books and investment banking. Um, I'm really excited to hear about your relationship with John Lewis also, and I know our listeners will wanna hear about that, but, but first, What do you do in your spare time? (laughs) Um, I mean, like I said, you're a young man. You've got a prolific career. Uh, What came first? Was it writing, music, uh, investment banking? You worked with Deepak Chopra. You know, where did you get your start? What did you focus on when you were growing up?
2: Yeah, I think it was writing. I think it was writing because I remember um, as a kid, my grandfather, who was a nuclear uh, scientist, I sat with him while he was writing his um, his manuscript, his autobiography, and it always sort of occurred to me, like, this is great to be able to, you know, immortalize someone through the, the words on the page. And so I was, you know, I started my second grade school newspaper and it, you know, when you, when you write the news, you have a seat at the table, no matter whether it's campus politics or podcasts, you're, mm. there's this constant learning, constant curiosity. And uh, when I was in college, I was a, I wrote for the student newspaper. So It's really been words on the page. And I think, you know, people say, what do you think about this issue? What do you think about that issue? And I said, I don't know, because I haven't written about it yet. And so I realized I learned by writing. um, And and that's when you crystallize um, thoughts. So I think I'm a writer. It's very core.
1: You mentioned campus politics. Did you get involved in politics in school at an early age?
2: I did. I mean, I went to school in New Hampshire and uh, there was the local politics. Well, first I was, I was, you know, I ran for student president or whatever in high school and, nice. uh, did well there. But beyond that, doesn't I,
1: surprise I, me. Just well, sorry. <laughs> to,
2: <laughs> well, the thing is, is I appreciate it. Well, the thing is, is I went to school in New Hampshire in college and there was a first in the nation primary, uh, New Hampshire primary. So that's where I was able to volunteer for the John Kerry presidential campaign. And again, as a writer, I began writing speeches and, um, and I just, you know, the, the words are, are powerful vessels. And as, as we all know, and, um, it's not only until, you know, recent, I've been able to use, lift the pages from lift the words from the pages into verses, into songs, into meditations you mentioned with Deepak. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it, I just like to like to create with words.
1: Incredible. So you were writing speeches for the carry campaign, right? And, um, Let's talk a little bit about your music, too, because um, I'm a music guy. Um, what got you involved? I mean, you're, you're a veteran also, so I'm not sure where you have time for all this. But, you know, when did you start producing? You, you've won multiple Grammys as a producer. So uh, how did that get started for
2: you? Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in music. Um, my sister brought home a Miles Davis recording when I was, I think, in elementary school. Nice. When I was just. It's like you know, I couldn't believe music sounded so good, and I. When she said it was most of it was improvised, I, it just was hard to fathom, and that created my love affair with jazz music because you can listen to the kind of blue, and it will speak to you differently, um, however long you, however many times you listen to it. And so I picked up the bass, and I like the bass because um, everyone needs a bass player. It was an easy way to make friends. <laughs> I was just gonna and, say
1: that you can get a gig if you're a bass yeah. player. If you're a guitarist
2: like me, there's <laughs> a million of those. <laughs> well, yeah. And it, you know, I was in the orchestra and band and um, we, we were in a high school competition that was put on by jazz at Lincoln Center. Um, and we were able to go to New York. So, you know, as a young, as a teenager, I was able to play at Lincoln Center. There I met um, Wynton Marsalis um, and we wow. had in- Instant Affinity and he invited me on tour with him. And, but I never wanted to be a musician full time. It's just not one of my, you know, my parents were business folks and I never thought that was like a viable career path, um, so I just didn't go into it. But then, I, when I graduated college, um, I started a job in investment banking, and I realized—I I mean, I actually cried on my first day of investment banking because I felt like a sellout and I was—it mm. um, wasn't very entrepreneurial. Uh, and the, the credit crisis had begun, and I realized, you know, I have a paycheck, and a lot of my artists are trying to make things happen—you um, know, albums, uh, trips, studio sessions. So I started to use my paycheck ultimately to start producing sessions, and and I didn't own any of the any of the rights, so it was like a patron. I didn't know what even music rights were, so it was you know it was like these sweetheart deals I was doing. But I got to meet a lot of people in the music world, and um, you know I call this having a portfolio career. Like my job didn't give me one hundred percent satisfaction, but my extracurricular music did, and so I had the, the benefits of a paycheck and the joy of recording sessions and making music. And, it, you know, and I did that for many years and I built a, um, a bit of a, I don't know if a reputation, but in the jazz world of just trying to make things happen. And that's where the producing came. I was able to connect. Um, and a lot of these folks were investors on Wall Street, you know, like, hey, how do we support these projects that mm. normally don't have capital? And yeah. so it became as a capital thing, but it eventually became more musical as I started to produce the sessions and fire up Ableton and, and make the songs myself.
1: Nice. You produced a record called "American Dreamers: Voices of Hope, Music of Freedom," uh, which was the John DeVersa Big Band. It featured DACA artists. In 2019, you also wrote "Fandango at the Wall," creating harmony between the United States and Mexico. These are projects that heavily feature the problem we have with immigration and uh, and some solutions working together with that. Obviously, we have a new administration but what has changed at the border since you wrote this but since you wrote the book and worked on this project
2: yeah fandango the wall um was probably one of the biggest project i've taken on a book a uh, album it's a hbo documentary right now right and it's a
1: documentary as well yeah
2: yeah yeah i mean i think what's changed is the animus um you know the the demilitarization of the border zone if you recall in the previous administration the uh, army was activated to go um, probably more as a um, political ap- a re- motivation than a national defense reason to go down to the wall and to. And that's that's one thing that's happened is the demilitarized zone has been demilitarized in a way, <laughs> and, which I think it should be. And yeah. I think there's actually more um, economic um, combo ways, uh, security, um, joint tra- training programs. And so I think it's, there's still issues. There's still undocumented people coming across the border. Um, there's still the flow of, um, you know, guns going, people don't talk about this, guns going from North to South and drugs coming from South to North. So there's still that, but I, what, what hasn't changed is there hasn't been comprehensive immigration reform, which I think right. um, may pass if uh, we were close to it a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago now. And one of the reasons I did this, these two projects was because um, you know i think uh you can put a face on immigration you can put a a lot, a lot of people when they think about mexico they think about drug cartels they don't think there's actually a mexican middle class the people who like raise their kids and go to schools and hard working and so fandango the wall was all about showing like you know people who were musicians for a living and what they do and uh that's one of the the re- audience reactions and listening to the and watching the project because, wow i didn't actually know there was Real people in Mexico. Uh, I was like, yeah, there, there are. And so...
1: <laughs> These are actual human beings like us. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Uh,
1: um, how does our administration opening up our country to 100,000 Ukrainian uh, refugees reflect upon the struggles that Latin American refugees have getting into our own country when they're seeking asylum, fleeing similar violence uh, and, and issues?
2: Yeah, it's a very, uh, very good question. And it's something that um, I've been thinking a lot about because he raised the issue about othering folks, right? America has had a long history, not just of welcoming immigrants, but also othering folks. You know, xenophobia is as much part of the American history as, uh, you know, being a nation of immigrants. And and also say for Europe, you know, there was many uh, refugees coming from Syria. What makes them different than the Ukrainians? And, you know, it's it's. Part of its human nature, I would imagine, is, you know, you try to be helpful to people who look and sound and feel like you. I think that's sort of an innate tribalism. Um, And that's at play here, unfortunately. I think, um, you know, Europeans seem to be akin They speak, maybe they don't speak the same language in this case, but that's something we we should be concerned with. And I think the U.S. would be wise to welcome more refugees from, from Central America and, in Latin America, I mean, our immigration, tr- our, our growth trends, our population trends are in decline, or they're stagnating, and, yeah. and birth rates are low. And so, we need the, we need to grow, we need the diversity. We, we should be proud that people want to come here and not and not leave this country. So many countries are experiencing brain drain, and uh, mm. I think we should be welcoming welcoming people um, uh, much more aggressively here.
1: I agree, I agree. Um, well, let's talk about the John Lewis book. This book, uh, it's called Carry On, Reflections for a New Generation. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. A lot of our listeners may have it. Um, The audiobook was read by Don Cheadle. This book is essentially John Lewis's last words before he passed. Um, You talk about how he was a mentor to you. How did you first get connected to John Lewis?
2: I'm from Atlanta. Um, and my my dad immigrated from India. Um, he likes to joke he was Indian number nine when he came in <laughs> 1960s in Atlanta. Now there's, you know, over 100,000 South Asians in this community. Hmm. And uh, India, excuse me, Atlanta was um, not such a, a big and vibrant place in the 70s and 80s. And uh, when John Lewis was a congressman, um, he, um, my dad and him, uh, got to know each other and they he would come john lewis would come to my father's office talk about local politics local business affairs mm. and we struck up a, a friendship we struck up a relationship in fact andrew young ambassador andrew young who was the mayor of atlanta after he was mayor my father was the only one to offer him a job and so um andy young um worked as a vice chairman to my father's company and we traveled the world together and it was very of course blessed um that andy was my godfather and uh and so, uh, you know, I wrote a book with Ambassador Andrew Young maybe 10 years ago, just documenting our relationship. And the conversation with John Lewis, uh, I wasn't as close, but we maintained a conversation over the over the decades and, you know, was able to travel to uh, to Selma with him and and um, march across the MN Pettus Bridge together some, few, some years ago. But it really was, you know, in the last year of his life when he received his diagnosis, um, we spoke. And, you know, I think he had some... He wanted to, you know, put his, as he put it, his last um, words, his last statements down on, down on paper. Now he didn't, he didn't say this would be his last, but I, we, we all kind of knew, and he knew about my work with, um, with Ambassador Young. And so what happened was uh, was just a series of conversations where he spoke about what was important to him on obviously issues of import, civil rights. Um, this is in the wake, you know, of uh, the the protests that were happening in 2000. Mm-hmm. i'm an arbory case here here in georgia some others mm-hmm. and uh also we spoke about john lewis the man like what did he like to do for fun like what he liked to go um shopping for antiques he loved, he loved milkshakes <laughs> you know uh, the name of his cat was cat <laughs> and so <laughs> you know <laughs> just funny. just he loved orange chicken and the kind of music he liked and the art that he liked so it was much it was we tried to just um and when he passed, it was, it was a very emotional experience. And, um, I was left with just notes and some recordings and, uh, had to kind of put this together and do what he, and you know, the book, the book is a, it's a short book, but it's it's the most difficult thing I've ever written because it was the weight of, um, his, his words, making sure they're reflected in a way that he he would feel comfortable.
1: Of course. I mean, as I said, and we all know, he's such an icon, uh, And champion for our democracy, so I can't imagine the weight on your shoulders to uh, to reflect that accurately. Um, What story from his life that may or may not be in the book uh, do you carry with you the most?
2: I think um, what happened in, in South Carolina when he was one of the first Freedom Riders, he was assaulted. He was attacked, you know, when he was trying to when he was um, trying to be one of those first freedom writers and his injuries were pretty severe. Mm-hmm. And you fast forward many de- decades later, his assailant reached out to him he said, you know, I was the one that abused you. I was the one that struck you wow. um, decades ago. And I'd like to come to your um, office to apologize because, you know, I don't think I'll have much longer on this earth. And when I meet my maker, I want to make sure I did right. Even even today, that the you know story kind of it moves me, and yeah. so of course Congressman Lewis obliged, and they met in his office and in his D.C. office, and and uh, he asked for you know um, forgiveness, and Congressman Lewis forgave him, and he just, you know it was part of this this, this um, feeling that you know people may not change immediately, but they grow and they think, and you know mm. people and places and, and societies evolve, and we need to have love in our heart to forgive people, and it was very difficult. Um, who who have come against us, but when people people see forgiveness, we need to be there to, to meet them, and to have an eye towards reconciliation. So I think that um, this idea we're so quick to fight, we're quick so quick to be angry, but reconciliation is um, you know it, it's is a seminal part of Congressman Lewis's life and his his message.
1: What an incredible story! I did not know that. That is beautiful and not at all surprising that that he would welcome that and and treat that that way. That's a great lesson for us as activists and volunteers to take away. But um, our show is a lot of very active people. Um, What would you like them to take away from this book?
2: Congressman Lewis was pretty clear about the power of voting. He said, Mm. get out there, don't fight, but vote. Vote like your life depends on it. He even said, you know, write it in capital letters all over the page, vote, vote, vote. And we were pretty, we were very proud, actually, uh, Steve, i got to tell you, in Georgia, um, with what happened in the Senate races, um, yeah. Congressman Lewis, his former pastor and his intern, came to victory. And now I think you have this year, you have Stacey Abrams, who uh, I think many would say has maybe inherited the mantle of voting rights, at least from a person in the public sphere. Um, mm-hmm. There's no one more closely associated with voting rights, I don't think, than her. Running for governor of Georgia, so yeah. I would say that um, voting is so important. I think passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is is uh, very important. I think uh, even going beyond that, but the fact that we can't at least um, have a meaningful voting rights legislation at a federal level would have been um, very troubling to Congressman Lewis to see what's happening still at the state. I know the attention's not there, so. It's not in the news every day, but I would encourage the listeners to know what's happening in your states, to know what's happening on the ballot. And voting isn't just happening in November. It happens right now. We're out voting, registering voters to vote. Um, just a quick little nugget. Mm-hmm. The 2000 election, there was a runoff in Georgia with the Senate elections. And Georgia Democrats Georgia, registered, I think, 75,000 people that didn't vote in the, in the November presidential. election and they've yeah. voted in the runoff. That's amazing, you know, like, so, you know, I'm sure people who listen to this show are very, you know, mindful and active activists and probably vote, but there's many people out there that don't. So it's finding those folks and convincing them that, you know, it, there are no safeguards. We are the safeguards of this. You think someone else is gonna do it? No, we saw how troubling it was in the last administration that we have, we've gotta be the safeguard of our, of our democracy and our communities.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. And I was I was reading an article over the weekend about that, too. I think it was from uh, Dan Pfeiffer. And, uh, you know, we get up in arms rightfully so about the Republicans that are doing all these awful things and where are the safeguards and how do we remove them. And we're looking at you know, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and the gross conflict of interest that he has with his wife Jenny Thomas pushing for the uh, overturning of a legal uh, and improper election—all of those things. Really, the safeguard we have, as you just articulated, is the vote. Maybe, maybe we can codify some norms into actual laws and and create. Uh, better ways for elected officials to have consequence when they uh, do these egregious things. But um, right now, our best way to uh, do that is to remove them by the vote. And, um, you know, we have a lot to overcome. Georgia is a a perfect state to illustrate how voter suppression can – how much we have to fight against historically and recently, as recently as – uh stacy abrams first run for governor when she really should have been governor um and how we can overcome that suppression too we shouldn't have it we need to pass as we said the john lewis voting rights act we need to pass more voting rights legislation um but we have overcome rampant voter suppression before and we can do it again if we do what you're doing get out there and and register more voters so that's my diatribe i couldn't agree with you more and and if you need inspiration look no further than this book and um john lewis's life as as we all do um yeah, I, I was also talking recently, um, my father is, is uh, worked in politics. He was counseled to President Johnson and he's 90 and, and in ill health. So I was kind of reflecting on, on his life and sad that he had to be around for these last few years and see this after he'd worked as a Democrat for change. I mean, John Lewis, you know, his life's work, you know, he at the end of his life Saw Trump and and the rolling back of of voting rights and all this, um, but I think, and you know better that you can just affirm this or or say I'm completely off base here. I think better than anyone else, John Lewis knew the struggle and the arc of history where you have some successes and you have some defeats and you move forward and you're pushed back, but you always keep moving forward. And undoubtedly, our country is in a much better place uh, than we've ever been, um, e- despite the the enormous uh, amount of road we still have to travel. Um, so... I've talked a lot. This is all the lead into um, with your experience with this book and, and the work you're doing in general. What gives you the most hope for the future right now?
2: Well, first, all, I want to say uh, respond to uh, I'm so glad you shared about your your family, your father. Um, you know, the, the Johnson administration was, uh, I mean, they did big things for race relations. They, they yep. were, worked in concert. So um, if your father was part of it, and I, I appreciate hope you he, hope he's doing better. And and thanks for um, his and your contributions to um, to the civil society here. I think, in terms of hope, you know, John Lewis said never, never give up hope because, you know, we all know the story. He was left for dead on a on Bloody Sunday in Selma. The man did not lose hope. You know, he could, he could have, he could have quit the, but he was like so. There was a um, a, a stubbornness you can say steadfastness but a stubbornness mm. about john lewis i mean there were things um there's a story here in uh there's a in atlanta that you know andy young tells it in the in the introduction to the book that he was trying to get john Lewis to, to support him for building the this road in atlanta and john lewis refused because he can't he didn't set up he said i, I promised my constituents that i would i was not gonna um support this road but they got the funding and Andy Young they named it the John Lewis Freedom Parkway in spite of John Lewis. So when you, <laughs> so when you come through Atlanta, you see the John Lewis Freedom Parkway. The reason I mention that is John Lewis is so steadfast that he understood that he'd be stuck to your guns. Um, he, he was one of the few people in the nineties who came out against the Defense defense of marriage act. You know, he, he, he um, w- was very principled. And when, I think that came from his understanding of faith, his understanding of scripture. And he's someone that um, I think generations from now we're going to look back on and see him as kind of uh, the American Dalai Lama, right? Of this kind of patron saint. Yeah. He could go to any district. Uh, even Republicans would go in to, would want him to come to any district because you know, almost any district in America, there's a certain percentage of it is minority to African-Americans. And one picture with John Lewis would make people... <laughs> Uh, of all political parties look um look better so i think we i would love for people to keep on writing stories about john lewis to keep on telling a story to make movies to make documentaries about him to um to write poetry inspired by him i think uh, as a a creative person myself i I encourage all creative types to keep on um retelling a story because it'll you know put them more into the mythology of america and 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 put them alongside the founding fathers of, of um people who really made this country better off.
1: Yeah. here, here. Well, thank you again for your work. And um, uh, I don't even know where to get started. Maybe where should people get started when they want to, <laughs> you've got so much work out there. Uh, where should they go to find it?
2: Yeah. My website is called, it's just Kabir, K-A-B-I-R dot C-C. And I write a weekly um, newsletter, it's called Seven Point Sunday, where I just give seven tips on ways to Maximize your life from, you know, product productivity hacks to music to suggested listening and books. So I just try to I try to write a newsletter that people want to read because it's not about me; it's about the audience. It's about the reader. So mm-hmm. if you'd like to engage with that, you can sign up on my on my uh, website.
1: Great. We'll have a, a link to that in our show notes as well for everybody. And uh, Kabir, this has been great. We didn't even get to talk about your children's books, and I want to dig into more music, but maybe another time. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you, Steve. Really a pleasure.
0: Let's end on that inspirational note by talking about our reasons for hope.
1: Yeah, well... I want to share yours because I saw oh, okay. what you have written here. So I'm just going to plus one to yours and let you talk Yay. about it. I love <laughs> it.
0: So um, we've actually talked about Summer of Soul on this podcast and encouraged people to watch it. It's an incredible documentary about this music and political movement in Harlem that that happened one summer. And it was um, produced by one of my friends, Favorite musicians, Questlove. Um, I have been a fan of his band, The Roots, since I was a teenager, and have seen seen them perform a bunch of places. I've seen him DJ. I look to him as like uh, inspiration and tapping into creativity and, and passion projects. He's an incredible person, and this is an incredible piece of art. That he has has brought to us and he a his well-deserved film, Oscar
1: win. His first film, too.
0: He like, like I think he's a genius, so I'm not surprised that his first film won an Oscar. Um <laughs> he, like a huge fangirl. can we can we try to get him on the podcast?
1: Oh yeah. I'm gonna try. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll put that out there. I've been trying to get John Legend on for a while too. One of my favorite uh, mm, yeah. records is the one that he did with The Roots, John Legend and The Roots, called Wake Up, which is a whole mm. bunch of protest songs and, and uh, social change songs from the 70s. And uh, it's a great record too. But yes, love Summer of Soul. If you uh, haven't heard us talk about it already, just go see it, get Beautiful. it. Beautiful. You know stream it whatever you got to do it's the music's great the message is even more powerful and um it's a really important film yes quest love summer of soul gives me hope i want to sign off from this publish this podcast and go watch it right now
0: all right let's do it then so let's wrap it up so you can do that Thank you for joining us everybody. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved.
1: We want to hear from you. We want to hear your Will Smith hot takes. Send us an email <laughs> at hello at how we win.com or tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at mariah underscore craven.
0: Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you get your pods
1: share us with your friends help us build this community of informed and active volunteers after all this is how we win
0: we really appreciate you being here with us we'll be back with more next wednesday in the meantime go see coda go see summer of soul uh and let us know what you think bye everybody